I'm very fixated on that question, is when can an institution be revolutionary or liberatory? Because, you know, honestly, institutions, what do they do? They are a substitute for interpersonal relations. And we all want interpersonal relations. But then you have massive networks of patronage. You have, I mean, that's how, like, the old boys club or, like, you know, you know, white networks get, get formed. That kind of level of cultural capital, which in some way is really important, cultural and social capital, has also been extremely exclusionary when it comes to the arts and culture. And it's why, you know, so many people of color or marginalized people don't find a home in so many museums of the world, right? Because it's based on so many codes of behavior and social and cultural capital that have no way in. Welcome to Creativity Pioneers, a podcast by the Moleskin Foundation that aims to spark dialogues and reflections on how creativity is understood and talked about, showing us its use for positive personal and social transformation. I'm your host, Adam Asane, Moleskin Foundation CEO. Please subscribe now to our podcast on the platform of your choice and tune in for new episodes. I look forward to reading your thoughts and comments on our social media channels. For this episode, I'm joined by Nadine Blackenberg, the director of the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art in Washington, D.C. Nadine has previously worked as an international consultant for museum and cultural institutions, advising more than 55 cultural projects in 35 cities on five continents on all aspects of museological practice. She has worked with all types of institutions and also advised on integrating cultural spaces in cities and parks, developing art residencies, making archive accessible, engaging communities, and decolonizing knowledge production. In this episode, she shared with us the impact she tried to make in her new role at the Smithsonian, while sharing part of her unconventional personal and professional journey. Today, Nari will explore three words, institutional, global Africa, and regeneration. Enjoy the conversation. I've been thinking, you know, uh, a little bit about the conversation that we had in the recent, uh, actually a few months since we met, you know, and I think I remember that after the first time we met, and it was a moment in which, you know, it was after your talk with Diana Jackson in London, there was a lot of noise, there was a lot of uh, music, and yet after like the first hello, we get right away into a very deep conversation <laughs> like there was no <laughs> it was a, and 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 it was interesting because i think it was right away from the beginning of like okay now is this moment there's a moment of of change that is happening uh you know at a, at, at the institutional level there there is something you know obviously you had you have this new position as director of the of the Smithsonian um, African Art Museum in DC. This is a big deal. Uh, congrats again for that. Uh, but you. also you have, you have a number of people that would normally not get this type of position. I'm thinking about it, Vera Dianganiose, with whom I'm gonna have a conversation on this podcast uh, with you or uh, you know, at the Makba uh, or, or uh, um, um, also Bonaventure Kung in Berlin, you know, with the Museum of Cultures there, with whom I had a conversation with. And 
And, and but also like people like Hebamin, who's now having tenure position, you know, in German institution, they were almost like impossible to get in and so on and so forth. So you see partially, you know, the work that were happening in the early 2090s, early 2000s, and they were coming obviously from before, but, but this element of representation now is, is starting to, to bring these fruits. And, and that's quite exciting. At the same time, there is the risk of thinking about this as a result, you know, as, as some say, okay, now, cool, we, we did it. While, while it, it feels probably as, as a starting point of, of something much more complex. <laughs> so, so I'm kind of wondering, how do you, how do you feel about this moment? Uh, you know, how do you feel this moment, like where, where all these things are happening and this new dynamic are happening and you are one of the protagonists in this, in this new dynamic? How does, it, how does it make you feel? It makes me feel great. <laughs> um, I think it's so interesting that you would, you would point that out and I, I can't really talk about other people's experiences. Um, but for me, I... Although I have often many days where I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Mostly, I feel like I am exactly where I should be. I, I don't think I have had more clarity <laughs> in what needs to be done and what I need to do to do it than ever before in my life. And I think it's interesting. Um, and I think often of why that is. Um and I think it's a, like, I think it's a confluence of things. I think some of them are personal. Um, I'm 50 and I'm a woman. I just talked to so many women of my age and we're like, okay, you know, you can spend most of your life in a, in a state of um, anxiety as to how, you know, you're appearing to others. And at some point you just say, well, too bad. I am what I am. Um, I think that I'm a mother. Um, and I have two children who are in their 20s, and I see them going through a lot of the same things that I did. Um, and it infuriates me because I know that what they're doing is not new. And I'm sure it's also what infuriated our parents, um, who also recognize that what we went through is not new. So I think we're at a time where we're like, you know, enough is enough. And I think, you know, this whole critical race theory, which you know, whatever, it's very culturally specific when we use that language, but really it's a recognition that these things are systemic, not attitudinal, you know, that racism and discrimination and exclusion and white supremacy are baked into the system. And we've tried asking people to be nice and we've tried, you know, appealing to individual behavior, but it hasn't changed anything. And so I think that a lot of us are stepping into this position, seeing in our lifetime and seeing if we have kids, how they're struggling through the same thing and really being aware that, okay, we've got to do something different. What has happened before has not, has worked in some ways. And there are a lot of lessons in the past, but we have to approach things differently. And so for me as a mother, as like a kind of crabby, you know, perimenopausal menopausal woman <laughs> um, and as a black woman as a as an absolute minority in this you're like you know what 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 have we got to lose 
we've got, you know, we have to make change in this world. We have spent probably most of our lives preparing or actively making change. We've been kicked in the teeth so many times that it doesn't necessarily scare us anymore. Um, and, And so I think that, you know, it's such a great, exciting moment because we we've been prepared for it <laughs> and we've been prepared for it because we've been in like white dominant environments. We've been in environments where there's been like systemic exclusion. We've, we've seen the bullshit um, and we've been managed to survive the bullshit to a certain degree. And now, now it's our turn. Yeah. Well, I guess that then the natural question would be like, you know, then, then what is Africa? And I think that's that's part of the thing. And I, but I, but I ask you this, you know. Also, I think it stays also partially within the three words that you that you choose for for this for this podcast that uh, uh, that are institutional, global Africa, and regeneration. Uh, maybe can you can you tell us a little bit about those three and why did you decide to use these three to to choose these three specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think those three words are really central to, you know, my, I guess, my vision at Namafa and in life, if you can divide them. Um, Sorry, Namafa for 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 who is listening that uh, that is not uh, familiar with? Yes, it's the National Museum of African Art. So Namafa I will use for the purposes of this conversation. Um, yeah, but there are a few things. One, it's, you know, what what is Africa? For me, you know, we're an African art museum based in the United States of America. We're not based on the continent. Um, you know, we have a collection from all over the world. Um, well, actually not from all over the world yet. Um, and so I've done a lot of thinking about what is it mean, what is our most appropriate positioning? And global Africa to me is really it. It is that, you know, It's this notion that Africa is not just on the continent, that Africa is global, not just generationally like African-American, but very currently. There is an enormous amount of movement in the diaspora. Um, And it's not just a one-way movement anymore. I think perhaps with our parents' generation, you immigrate someplace and you don't necessarily go back. I think what you're seeing a lot more is movement. You come, you, you know, you're in Senegal, you go to Paris or you go to Cameroon and then you come back to Senegal and then maybe you spend some time in Dubai. And, you know, I think there's a, there's a movement in the world at the moment, both psychologically and physically, um, that really speaks to what I consider to be global Africa. Um, and I think that that's a, it's an experience, it's an identity, it's a trajectory um, that that I think are, is not often celebrated or recognized. It's invisibilized, it's erased a little bit, and I would like to create space for that. Um, the institutional is because I believe in the oppression and the power of the institution um, in culture and in museums. Um, and a lot of the times I just think museums are too tainted and should probably be abandoned altogether. But most of the time I'm like, actually, no, institutions are really important and museums have all the building blocks for something that's incredibly important in our world. Um, and we should maintain them and we should be very cognizant of how the institutionalization processes both serve us and don't. And then what was the third one? Oh, regeneration. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really, I, I've been thinking a lot about how can we contribute as an institution 
uh, an, an Afro-global institution to a regenerative art ecosystem? How can we not be extractive, extractive of collections, extractive of capital, extractive of people, which we, you know, the paradigm of ownership and and having to have things and then we show what we have and then we buy more things. How can we create a much more equitable and regenerative art ecosystem for our time? And so those are three huge preoccupations of mine, which I'm trying to address in my mind and also in my action pretty much every day. Yeah. No, I no, I love to go a little bit deeper in all of these three because I, I think so one of the things that I found extremely interesting also about your profile uh, and your person and your background, um, especially in this new position that you have, is that you you don't come from from a pure curatorial experience or for a pure artistic historical experience. You are a true museum expert. You, are true, you understand the machine of the museum inside out. That's what you've done for many years uh, with many institutions, with many organizations. So uh, I, I, I think I saw one of your uh, old uh, um, uh, speeches that you, that you call yourself a museum doctor. <laughs> and, I, and I found it quite interesting. So, so there, is a, there is quite a unique perspective that you bring uh, to the table on this. But so when we think about the museum, and you touch a little bit upon it, when you, when you think about the institution and when you talk about the idea of regeneration, um, the question that I have is that, can you escape your nature? Can you, can you, uh, you know, the, the museum was, was, was a product of, I mean, was the biggest and highest idea of soft power display but soft power that comes from real military power or economic, economic power. And as you said before, there is an idea of, of extraction, there is an idea of, you know, can you escape that? Because that institution was created for that specific moment. And, 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 and I'm often struggle with this question. I think you, you hinted something in your, in your definition. So, so I'm wondering, can you escape your nature? That's such a good question. And honestly, I don't know. I think so. I'm going to try so, but I don't know. And it's a question that I actually raised. I was talking to a number of museum professionals in England, um, or, you know, I can, no, I think they're all from England, um, a couple of weeks ago. And I posed the same question because I'm not sure if a British museum can. Um, and the reason I say that is museums are a Eurocentric or, are, are, you know, they're, they're, a, they're a construction of the European Enlightenment and fully based on European philosophy. And I am not sure in Europe <laughs> whose entire society is based on that, whether, whether you can or even want to escape that, um, you know, provided you can kind of deal with all the, the, <laughs> the hard-baked racism and white supremacy and all of that. But that's another conversation. I think that when you talk about an African art museum, though, you do have choices of what kind of epistemologies, what kind of knowledge systems, what kind of philosophies do you want to base museum practice on? And I think that if you understand where museum practice comes from and how so much of it is rooted in you know, European or enlight European enlightenment ways of thinking, then you can challenge those and do those differently. And so, for example, one of the, you know, 
I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the parts that you don't see of the museum. So documentation, conservation, the work of the registrar, the work of the loans, the acquisitions, you know, the words that we use, the very modes of classification, right? So the notions of the canon, the art canon, <laughs> notions of value, of taste, of beauty, of, you know, all of these, 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 this impetus to categorization and classification comes from somewhere. And all the categories that we use to do so also come from somewhere. So what if you don't categorize or categorize differently? And what if you use different words? Um, what if you use different indicators of value? Um, you know, it was so funny. I was sitting with the, the registrar and the archivist yesterday, and we were talking about um, significance, which is actually a field that um, we don't really use so much, but many museums use to talk about their collections. So there's actually fields where you write in, okay, well, how much of your collection is of significance? And I mean, that's so fraught, right? Significance to whom? What are the categories? Like, and even the categorization, modern art, contemporary art, classical, traditional, textile, digital, all of those classifications come from very specific places. Um, and so when you start to question those classifications, you automatically get a very different type of institution. And I think that if you strip the museum back to its core functions, and I don't care whether you call it a museum or not, which is, which is conservation or stewardship in a more perhaps regenerative way, it's not necessarily ownership, but taking care of things for another generation, if you talk about public engagement and connection, if you talk about a public space, if you talk about research and knowledge production, if you talk about art experiences, all of those things put together are what museums are comprised of. And none of those things necessarily have to be inherently, um, you know, Eurocentric. I mean, they're not, they're, they're kind of inherently nothing. You can interpret all of those things in a different way. And when you start to do that, you get a completely different museum, if you will. I'm not too, you know, I'm not, you know, is it a museum? Is it not a museum? This, I mean, I think a museum is just a fairly useful term for us, but it may end up by being way too loaded, as a lot of people have found, and they don't use the word anymore. But for me, it doesn't really matter whether we rebrand, we use a different word, whatever. The point is those functions remain and how we carry out those functions um, is up to us. It's just that you have to know, you know, you have to assume that none of these things are neutral professional practice, but they all come from very specific assumptions and values about how the world should be seen. It sounds to me that there is, and exactly you use the word assumptions, uh, that is probably like the original scene of any institution that, that is about not questioning the assumption that created it anymore, you know, and, and really because then in the end is the, is, is the core of, of the philosophical work, is it the core of the intellectual work, just questioning who you are, understanding your position, your position, your positionality, as, as you were saying. And I found it quite interesting that that was the first things that you, that you told me, you know, and you were like, the first thing they need to understand is like, who are we? And, and what is our position in the context now, not, a million years ago, not century, but now what is the role that we can play? And, and it seems to me that it's also like a perspective that is very connected to the contemporaneity, to really almost like to a very practical, um, you know, uh, approach to, to the role of the institution, uh, your institution in this. I think my question though, that I'm always interested about is it's about 
policies, bureaucracy, and so on and so forth. You know, uh, because in, often, you know, that's that's kind of like the the clear outcome of, of of an institution. You know, an institution to a certain extent maintain itself and maintain its power through policies and bureaucracy. That's that's how. That's how, in many cases, systems are built that are beyond the intention of uh, of whoever is governing that those uh, those uh, those institutions. So my question is: Is it possible to try to have a revolution through uh, through bureaucracy, uh, or, you know, and, and through policy? And and I, and I like the word very much revolution because. Uh, my, you know, one of our dear friends, Simon, Simon Jami, he always, he always think about when he, every time you talk, you use the word revolution, you think about, yeah, yeah, the revolution of the earth. You always come back at the same point. So now the question is also like, which revolution is it possible through bureaucracy, if so? Yeah, you're giving away my like little my stealth strategy, which is revolution through bureaucracy. <laughs> um, absolutely, I think it's possible. Um, but you got to understand it. You know, Lonnie Bunch, who I respect a great deal, who's the secretary of all the Smithsonian's, and he's the, the founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and he's a long-time Smithsonian person. And he's always says to me, you know, you can make the bureaucracy work for you. And I don't, I must say, I haven't had huge amounts of success doing that so far. But I realize that some of the activities that I'm introducing are bureaucratizing things. And, and I'll explain what I mean. I mean, I think that bureaucracy doesn't necessarily mean obfuscation. There can be a clarity and a transparency to policies and procedures. And in fact, that's their initial intent, right? The point about standardizing things, putting together policies and procedures is to provide a process and a clarity as to how the system works, complex systems, right? And I think I think most people would agree that that has value, you know, that, 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 that there is a certain value in that. Where it starts to break down is where those become impenetrable, and where you have the gatekeepers of these rules who forget entirely that the rules are there to clarify and facilitate, but they're there to keep people out and to, in a way, maintain power. So you have the gatekeepers who interpret these rules as, as being actually a gate, literally a gate, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, as to as opposed to a gateway or a bridge. I think that what happens a lot in the art world is that this lack of rules or policies or understanding the way transactions get made, the way the gallery system works, the way that value is created, the way that often curatorial departments work, it's just based on no one really knows. And therefore, there's no, there's no door in. They, they are anti-bureaucratic in a way, but in that way, I think that they've, they've kept a lot of people out. And I think that often if you talk in museums about the biggest problems with museums in the process of decolonization or transformation or whatever they want to do, a lot of it is this, this, this almost secrecy of how decisions get made. 
right? Like, you don't know, someone talks to someone and then they go for cocktails and then they like, you know, and suddenly you have an exhibition or you have an acquisition or you have like a, you know, a collection or, you know, that there's just so, it's so difficult to understand. And therefore you don't know how to make your way into that. You just don't know if you don't speak that language um, on all levels. And so for me, the rules and making being transparent about the rules and the processes um, can be extremely liberating. And I learned that a lot from, you know, a, a really a colleague and a friend of mine who I respect so much, Angela Cassie, who was at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights and is now at the National Gallery of Canada. And, and she's a longstanding federal government employee and a master bureaucrat. But she has also taught me about the incredible importance of having a liberatory bureaucracy or a liberatory set of policy or regulation. But then, you know, you have to be extremely careful because then it can just be forms upon forms upon forms and nobody can get anything done and it becomes inhumane. It becomes, continues to be like a barrier and a problem. And, and so I'm very, I don't know what the answer is. I think it is possible. I'm very fixated on that question is when can an institution be revolutionary or liberatory? Because, you know, honestly, institutions, what do they do? They are a substitute for interpersonal relations. And we all want interpersonal relations. But then you have massive networks of patronage. You have, I mean, that's how, like, the old boys club or, like, you know, you know, white networks get, get formed. That kind of level of cultural capital, which in some way is really important, cultural and social capital, has also been extremely exclusionary when it comes to the arts and culture. And it's why, you know, so many people of color or marginalized people don't find a home in so many museums of the world, right? Because it's based on so many codes of behavior and social and cultural capital that have no way in. So I look at it as twofold, right? I, I am very aware of how dehumanizing the bureaucracy can be, but I'm also aware of its liberatory potential. And, and I'm really focusing on transforming from one because I've now been introduced into the biggest bureaucracy I have ever worked on in my life. Um, but how can that those systems and processes um, be used for, for liberation and transformation instead of keeping people out? Yeah. Yeah, because I think that's often something that every time we talk about the colonization, decolonization, et cetera, is, is the part that often people miss to understand that, you know, the typical comment of like, oh, come on, it has passed X amount of hundred or years from X. And you're like, yes, but you South Africa, for example, is a great is a great example. Like independently of everything, the policies that were put there during apartheid were supposed to work for the next 300 years. And, and they to did. Dismantle, and, and, they, and they, it is like, so that, and, and to dismantle them, you know, it's, um, it, it's a work on its own. And, 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 I'm, and sometimes I'm wondering whether, you know, it's, uh, um, you know, it, obviously, I do, I do believe that it's a possible task, but it's almost like an impossible task in some cases within a certain amount of time. And, and that's the question that I'm kind of wondering. But I'm, I'm, I have a, do you have an example of this? Because, because sometimes, and, and also like probably some of the, some of the uh, simplest and often like stupidest things that people don't think about that then it becomes like a huge block. They make something instead of, you know, taking one hour, it takes two months to do something. Um, yeah, I, I, 
Let's see. Well, I'm dealing with them every day. A lot of them around human resources, right? Because, I mean, as much as we talk about the importance of policies and procedures, um, also the people (laughs) in charge of implementing those policies and procedures matter a lot, right? So, I mean, we talked about the beginning of this conversation about a new wave of new kinds of leaders are, are, are emerging and that we're changing things because of who we are to a certain degree. Mm. The institution withstands. <laughs> and I think the degree to which we are able to transform the institution beyond us is really a measure of our success. But so hiring is really critical in that because you need, I firmly believe that you also need with the, the institutional transformation, you also need changes in personnel and people. But how you hire, typically in a bureaucracy, is just fraught. And so that everywhere, I think, is familiar with this, right? There are so many rules often in HR, what their nationality has to be, what their, you know, what their passport has to say. Do you have a social security number? Do you have, like, can we, can we send money to a, a foreign bank account? How can we wire the money? Is it dollars or is it Naira? Is it... Um, you know, who who needs to sign off on what forms? Like all of that basically is a very kind of invisible barrier to, um, for example, to hiring more racialized people in an organization, often in a bureaucracy, because it is such a colossal pain in the ass for me to hire anybody. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. that my, my it's easier for me to hire someone who's already in the system, like just because of the bureaucracy. If they already have this number that you need, and they already have this, and they already have this, it cuts my work down by seventy percent. Wow. So, frankly, like whether I believe that I should hire more black people or more Africans or blah 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 blah. I have to work damn hard to be able to work the system, to be able to do it, because it's just easier to hire the same people we hired 20 years ago. But it's just it's just easier because the system has a series of checks and balances. That's not the intent. The, the intent, probably not overtly, was to maintain kind of white supremacy, but that's the impact, right? And so you have to be willing to take on that battle, And I mean, I actually do think it might have been part of the intent, right? I mean, part of this is, you know, the reference system, who is able to reference who, who's considered the academic qualifications, you know. Um, So I think human resources is is one example that probably a lot of people can relate to, where you you find, you know, you find systems put in place to ensure fairness. Um, But often they backfire because they stand in the way of going outside of the box um, and hiring people outside of the box. So that's an example, which isn't just cultural institutions. It's any institution trying to change and running face to face against against fairness or HR regulation. That just means that you can't do transformation because the terms are already defined as to who's appropriate and who's not in this particular job. Yeah, yeah. No, very clear. we need to go back to 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 something that that you touched before, and and we go back to the question of your second word that is global Africa, and and so the question remained the same: What is Africa? I mean, listen, I think that it's extremely important, um, and in fact, in, in my interview for this job, I said Africa is not a metaphor, right? Africa is not a metaphor. Africa is not a symbol. Africa is not just an origin story. 
you know, Africa is a continent. <laughs> Africa is comprised of very real places and people and very complicated geographies and, you know, local, et cetera. And it's very, very important here in the U.S., um, um, which I'm just trying to get used to, you know, I think I think Africa is so fuzzy as a real place that it just falls prey to all kinds of essentialisms and stereotypes, um, which I guess are can be useful in a way if they're not, you know, negative. But I'm not sure whether in the final analysis they are because they 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 completely don't allow Africa to exist in a in a contemporary complexity. Um, and so oftentimes, you know, I just got back from a month and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to South Africa today, but I was in South Africa and Zimbabwe and Nigeria. And, um, you know, it was great because when I'm in, in Europe or the U.S. or, you know, wherever, sometimes you just kind of forget <laughs> the realities, like the kind of contemporary reality, because the, the stereotypical images of it are so, are so, um, so vivid. So, I mean, I guess the question is, I, I, you know, I don't think there is one thing that is Africa. I think that, I guess my focus is more on creating or an imagining a global Africa. And I think there is a space for an imagined community of global Africa. Um, that is also equally important. You know, we we work in the land of the imagination, of art, of, of imagined realities. And, and the reason I call on that is that, you know, imagined communities was used to define nations. And I don't think nations have been have served Africans particularly well. I think that defining it's countries. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and, and I think it's really interesting because even like post post the, the uh, dominant paradigm, though, right, is like, mm. you know, post independence has been a plea on nationhood. Yeah. Right. Like so th there's you know, the colonial powers, and then there's like the independence, and you still have the nation as being that, you know, the key organizing term of what it means to be a particular, what, what does it mean to be Zimbabwean? What does it mean to be Malawian? Whatever. So I don't think that those necessarily serve us really well, but I think that if we go back to our earlier kind of African internationalism and the, the, the Black Atlantics and all of that stuff, which is definitely obviously not new, um, I think therein there, there, there lies a lot more um, of what I mean by global Africa. I do think that it's different though now also in 2022 post COVID with the kind of new kinds of technologies that we have. And it's so tedious now to talk about technologies, but in reality, like, you know, my relationship to you and my relationship to people in South Africa and my relationship to like all other people around the world is like radically different than it would have been five years ago. Right. Mm. Um, and so how we imagine our community and how we can check whether that imagination is accurate or not has changed fundamentally. And I'm, you know, and I, and I'm wondering whether there is, you know, without going into semantics, but is a, is a work of pure imagination or is a work of translation, you know, and how can we be faithful translation of, uh, of a feeling that exists? And, and I'm, and I'm struggling with this. I'm not saying, I'm not stating this because, one of the struggles that I have, you know, and, and maybe you might have an idea around it, is, is as you said, on one side, we are fighting for complexity, you know, and to, to the recognition of complexities. And, oh, Adam, you know, yes, I'm actually Senegalese, Gambian, my name is Mandinka, but I'm Italian, but I was, and, and, I, and, I, and I fight to recognize all of this. 
At the same time, just also put it in some 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 marketing feeling around it. You know, um, the especially when you were in a, in a cultural and art sector, we fight for like, oh, it's not African, it's this, but at the same time, it's an African art museum or it's an African fair or it's an African whatever. At the same time, I can also say that, you know, Naire, me and you has really nothing in common in terms of background, but we recognize each other if we if we meet somewhere. And, and at the same time, there is, this this feeling you know that even now even if it's a million if i if i hear you know uh kwame Nkrumah's voice you know or 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 if i hear tabumbeki you know uh, or say i'm an african you're like ah oh, yes that's you know that's that's me <laughs> you know so there is always like this element in between improving the complexity of the terms, et cetera, et cetera, with also at the same time, recognizing some form of global identity. And I go back to the idea of global that as I think, you know, you might agree, global has a, has a connotation that, that is often tend to flex everything. So it's almost to say like we are, you know, I often feel trapped within the tools that I have to express a bunch of sensations and, and, and sense of belonging that I have that are very malleable. And language always somehow put me in some form of checkmate that I can't really move. How do you, how do you deal with this? And if, if, you, if you think... I, you know, yeah, no, completely well put. Um, you know, there are limits to language. That's why I like art. <laughs> and I think art enables us to talk about these things sometimes that language doesn't. I completely agree with you. You know, my I spent 10 years living in Europe, in Spain and in France. Um, and neither Catalan, nor Spanish, nor French are my first language. And, you know, as an Anglophone, you can move through the world very easily and, and you're, you're often not confronted. And, and I know your experience is different on this, but you're not often confronted with the limits of even your own language. And when you start to learn other languages, you recognize that they're whole concepts that there are no words for. There's just a completely different way of thinking. And then if you go beyond language, there's ways of expression that are not translatable in some ways, and yet we need to find a way of understanding one another. And I, I, I think it's also so contextual. I mean, in a way, I don't even say, I say global. Well, it's all, yeah, I use global in certain contexts, but I also use translocal, <laughs> which, because in a way, global has come to imply not only capitalism, elitism, and erasure, Right. And in a way, it's, it hasn't served us well in terms of a time where we have to take more care of what's local and around us, the planet, our relationships, um, and what's unique about our local place. But we still need to find a way of finding those commonalities between us. Um, and I hate talking like that because you start to get into this like sort of, I don't want to be like a humanist or <laughs> this liberal language because... I still believe in the like overthrow of something, of everything. Um, but I think we have to, we use language so differently depending on who we're talking to, right? I mean, 
I'm so lucky with the museum because it's it's an intimate medium. It's not a broadcast medium, you know, it's a narrow cast medium where you can, you know, when we do stuff online and on the web, as much as we need to reach out to other people, when we do in-person experiences, we can see who we're speaking to, you know, as opposed to a broadcast medium where you, you have to take a, you don't know who you're necessarily speaking to. Because I think that who you're speaking to changes radically. And so with our museum, for example, I've, you know, I've, I've said, I use this phrase all the time, we are moving from being about Africa to being of Africa and for Africans. And I am like hyper-focused at getting our staff to understand who we're speaking to, like to be a lot more audience-centered, not the people who necessarily visit us now, but who we want to be speaking to, which is young global Africans, right? And to actually start to understand, not make up what that means and what that conversation would be. So how is it different if you're talking to about Nollywood, Nollywood, you know, we're, we have an exhibit coming up, Ike Ude, Nollywood Portraits, um, incredible um, Nigerian photographer and artist, conceptual artist, um, celebrating the the art of Nollywood. So how would that conversation be different with a bunch of like Nollywood fans um, from the Nigerian diaspora versus, you know, a bunch of people who have never heard of Nollywood before, or nor Ike Ube, um, you know, from Kansas. Like what, how would that change the way we speak and the words that we use? And I think that probably you and I are constantly like, changing our vocabulary and what we say and how we say it depending on who we're talking with and being very aware that when we need to have solidarity and when we need to have critique you know when we need to be aligned as one people when we need to be black and when we need to be brown or mixed or 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 white passing or whatever like I'm always conscious you know coming from South Africa growing up in Canada you know, and navigating, in, you know, in the identity politics of Canada and, and I guess the U.S. in the 90s, you know, who you were was so important. And like the nuance of that, like the, the hyphens were important. And then I literally got into a plane and I was in South Africa and the importance of Black consciousness and calling yourself Black, you know. And so then I raised my kids and I'm like, you're Black. My kids are mixed all over the place. It's like, you know, there's Black and there's me and there's Indian and there's Muslim and there's Christian and there's like Zulu and there's whatever. And like, you know, my son actually said to me, it's like all my life, I thought I was Black. And then I've gone to South Africa and I'm not Black anymore. And, and you know, and I realized that was my failure, you know, as a, as a, as a mom in a way, and it was my own kind of political notions of identity that disallowed complexity because it was so important for a time in South Africa that everyone had to be Black in solidarity. It's a different time now, right? And, and I think that people choose their moments, their identities, their words, their language, their affiliations. But we can't have a blanket definition of what, you know, what any of that is because it just depends. In many places, people see me, I'm white or I'm Black or I'm like neither or I'm colored, you know, in South Africa, or I'm not colored, depending on what they assess I look like or how I speak or anything. And I cannot believe I am talking so much about identity because I do not even believe in it as like, <laughs> as a thing yeah. that we should be talking about, but I guess it does make a bit of a difference. But I think one of the, I think exactly, you know, connected to this, and I know that it's, 
is this constant tension. You know, it's about language. It's this constant tension of uh, of avoiding certain type of you know. This is, it makes me laugh when you talk about identity because like story of my life. All you all all your life to basically disintegrate the concept of identity, and then boom, you back like you know, like keynote speaker at a conference around <laughs> identity. You know, that's pretty much you know how how everything works on this. But I I'm very proud and, and knowing that is a, that is a work in progress. I'm very proud of myself at individual level, how I am dealing in within my concept of identity and race. You know, if I think about where I started and I think about where I am, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of that evolution. Um, but, uh, but also, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm also very grateful at individual level with all the people that I met in my life, you know, my, my, all my brothers and sisters that, that taught me how to deal with it indirectly, you know, and, and, and I'm very grateful for that because it's, it's, it, I really see that saved my life, that, that literally saved my life. One of the most complex situation here is, is I think is, is connected to what you were saying and it's connected to our conversation in general. I feel that at an individual level, when you are alone and when you're an individual, there is, and with, with poetry, with strategy, uh, with, with psychology, with philosophy, you can move as an individual and navigate the world in a certain things. The complexity now is when you are in a position in which you have the chance or you think you have the chance to then create a structure around it, <laughs> simplify things for others, uh, you know, for the next generation. And I think this either be, I guess, your family and your kids, or you know, all the way to be an institution. Obviously, there's a there's a there's a fundamental difference there. I'm not trying to, to put everything in the same in the same, but the idea is I feel this constant tension to say, how can you move from okay, you figure out yourself and you navigate it and you you know, you you know that uh, as you know. Virgil Abloh used to say, you know, that when he realized that the struggle was the point, you know, like you and then you and you 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 make your tools more and more sophisticated in order to navigate all this, to then okay, now I have to go outside of myself and create and and think of creating structure on path, etc. Is this how do you deal with this? Is this is because how do you transform your experience within new institutions as new institutions? And, and is this part of the new original sin? <laughs> you know, is it is it the wrong desire? Because sometimes I ask him, like, you know, um, I am I'm, I might paint, you know, the 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 walls in different ways, you know, be a heading of a, of an, uh, an institution, but an institution per se function with power, with structures, with frameworks that are that the moment that you put them on, 
their main function is to survive, you know, and to preserve themselves. Is it possible to create an empathetic institution? Is it possible to create a regenerative institution? Or, or the desire or our desire, our goal should be different? For me, I've always found so much solace as much as I recognize the limits of language in language in having a language to define or recognize or create space for who I am. And so, you know, when, when I was so drawn to theory and when you start reading all the great theorists, and for me, it was always being in books um, and there is language used to create a space where a feeling or a thought or an experience that I've had, suddenly I feel seen or heard and I get a huge amount of confidence mm. in that. And and so I find a lot of solace in the language of institutions because institutions, when they break down, are words to create policies. <laughs> you know, they, they are words and they're people um, and, the, and they're structures. And so being able to say, no, that's not what I meant. And that doesn't, that has intended unintended consequences. You, you can keep tweaking that language. I mean, an institution is also an imagined entity, right? I mean, I think all of these things, the nation, the institution, the museum, you know, when you break them down to their composite parts, they are malleable. Together, though, they're much stronger. <laughs> and when they're all together and you see it as, an, as, a, as a wall, as opposed to just a bunch of bricks um, and some mortar, you just think you can't do, you can't ever dismantle it. Right. What do they say? Like you dismantle it brick by brick. And I think that's the thing, right? Like you replace those bricks, you you create a new structure. You like you do it through language, through the language of policy, and you do it through people. You know, I don't know whether you can create an empathetic institution. And in a way, I don't know if that's you point. want to or need to. I don't, I would prefer. I don't know. I'm not a good rules person, so I don't do well with rules as much as I say there's some value in them. When someone tells me that, like, I can't do something because that's the rule, like, I immediately try to break it. But if someone tells me why the rule is in place and it makes sense to me, most of the time I can understand that. And so in a way, I think empathetic rulemaking <laughs> is perhaps more the goal than being an institution that's constantly empathetic. An institution can definitely be regenerative, though. I think that it's just looking at the goals differently, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is my goal to like regenerate or to own or to extract? I mean, it's quite simple. Like, what's the point of these collections? Like, do I have to have this collection or can I share it with someone else and just show it? Do I have to actually own it? Do I have to conserve it like to the end of its life or, or does it have a natural life? Like what was the artist's intent? Like, like I think that, you know, you can certainly the goals are like sort of the point. You can change the goalposts and then you have a completely different institution. I, I think it's, um, you know, and, and uh, but as much as I say that, I get incredibly frustrated because people hide behind everything to not have empathy as people and institutions include people. 
Mm. right? Institutions have people in them interpreting and making the rules. Like we're not outside of institution. There's no institution that just sort of sits there and there's no people who are part of it yet. I, I don't know. Maybe there's an entirely AI run institution, but for now, people are part of that institution. So we make judgments all the time. We we make judgments about what rules to apply when. We make judgments as to when to answer the phone or not. We make judgments like all of these things. And it drives me crazy when people are like, assume that there's a power that sits outside of us because we work hand in hand with the, the, the institutions or, you know, the museum are like the policies, the procedures, the building, the people, the collections, the artists, the funders, the stakeholders. I know all these different composite parts and none of them are set in stone, like not one of them. And so if one person says to me that can't be done or that's not the rule, it's like, well, why not? But yeah. we have power and they have power and we have to work together to make change, but it certainly can be done. Um, and we give institutions way too much power if we assume that there's no there's no ability to transform them and that people don't and people don't have agency within them. We yeah. all have a certain amount of agency. And even if we don't ultimately have a, a huge amount of power, you know, we have agency. We all, we, every individual has agency and I cannot tell you what I'm learning, right? Like how much power sits with people who I have never even met, who sit in a department I never even interface with, who are the ones who will either put a little tick next to my form in the system or not. And then they're on leave and then they don't want to do it. And then I piss them off. And suddenly what I want to do, I can't do it. And I'm the director of the museum and I cannot do it. And this person who is like, who I don't even know, who probably has nowhere near like the amount of money that I earn or the like, you know, positional power that I inhabit, they have so much power in what gets done and what doesn't get done. And if they have power to obstruct, they have power to facilitate. And we all have a certain amount of agency. I think this is, I, no, thanks for that. Because uh, I think it's it's really like, as obvious as it is, is probably like the part that we're missing the most often around this idea of agency versus institution and how much agency we have. You know, I was I was laughing within myself because I was I was like, yeah, I should quote, I should have one of my high level quotes, you know, and I was thinking, uh, you know, coming to America when <laughs> when the king you know was saying oh we cannot do this who am i to change the rule and the and the and the queen is looking like really like you, you know like <laughs> you know and and but but it's uh, but it's 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 really kind of this idea of 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 agency and how to decrease the distance that exists between the emeta idea of an institution and you because because the problem otherwise it becomes you know you 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 direct, you keep the responsibilizing yourself you keep you keep bringing your you willingly put your that agency outside of you um and and there is no brilliant policy or no revolution possible um you know within that then so so it makes sense you know and again thinking again that the the point is the struggle is is in a sense that everything is a constant motion so so there's not like a clear end in 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 this you know in a, in the regenerative element you know but the regeneration is the is the point 
That's exactly right. Because with the extraction, there is an end. With regeneration, there can never be an end. And this is this whole circular, you know, economy thinking, which is really how you dispose of things (laughs) and how you create things are part of the same conversation. You can't just have a one way. Uh, Like, it has to regenerate, you know. It's we we just have to and 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 i i very much see um you know the the struggles that we're in in terms of the climate and in terms of you know it's it's been positioned as such a such a white concern you know this environmentalism where it, it really is not and 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 the relationship that we have to the earth is the same colonial relationship of extraction that has caused slavery and colonization obviously and and extractive capitalism and it, it very much is that based on that same system of a hierarchy of value of a need to own and of a, of, a, of a lack of of consideration um, for creating regeneration. So everything that is at the basis of the museum and certainly an African art museum, which is like, we need to own as much stuff and the best stuff as much as possible, you know, but, you know, the people can't <laughs> get a visa. Um, you yeah. know, we don't care about the sources of the creativity. We just want the output, you know, like for, for me, it's, and and so the question of like regenerative economy is, you know, back to the point of HR, which I'm, um, you know, like I, I'm moving to the U.S., which is so ridiculous in terms of like no healthcare and no social safety net and no systems, right? And it's insane because the kind of contracts that you do, we have a, like a whole generation of precarious worker in the arts and culture who have not like can't start a family or own property or if you wanted to own property or do anything because you know you're like you're on six month or one year contracts and you have no benefits and and you just kind of bounce around doing that that's not regenerative it's like you can go to the art auctions and you can get your work and your work is worth something but you as a person are worth crap when you get old where are you going to retire you know all of those things are where, where I think an institution can start building and looking at things for the long term where perhaps an event or a pop-up or something more sporadic can't. And, and that's the other thing why I think institutions are valuable, or at least museums as an institutions, is there are very few forms out there in the arts and culture that enables people to build lives and livelihoods. You know, events are undoubtedly more exciting, festivals and events, but look at how that whole industry was wiped out by COVID. Right. Like how many like precarious, like great, there's unions, but, you know, the unions haven't worked so well with like a lot of cultural workers and artists. Right. So you're completely on your own. And we romanticize it about being like independent artists or whatever. But because we're just in such an extractive cultural ecosystem, we don't care about the creators. We just care about what is created so we can own it. I, yeah. I just I find it egregious, and it's something that like I am trying very hard to to make a dent in. No, I think well, this is well put, and it's uh, and 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 it's and it's very true. I'm also thinking that you know the way you explain all of this, it, it felt it has a feeling almost as um, you know this idea of of starting from the idea of who you are with the idea of positionality, understanding, questioning your assumptions and trying to, with the goal of, of trying to create and regenerate something something new that take, 
a group of other type of criteria in mind. Um, I think, you know, I have this feeling, you know, talking to you that it's, it just reveal, you just decide to, to accept the complexity of reality. And, and it's, uh, and, and it's not, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really that it's always been like that, but before we had strategies or society build up strategies to just create, you know, blind spot to create, you know, assumptions that you couldn't, that you never questioned. So you never be able to see beyond the thing. So, so you would see a portion of reality that it was created for you. And now we are finally, you know, in a, in an era where where this is more and more apparent to a to a to a to a vast majority to a, to, a, to a large group of people. And I'm and I have to say I'm very I'm very excited about this new generation Z, uh, you know, because because I I think that many of these conversations, if I think about it them, you know, about them when I was 18, you know, 16, 18, was almost impossible. Because I was, you know, I was, I was, yes, I was struggling for, for, my, for the recognition of my identity, but it was very, um, it was still done in, in, in silos, you know, there were still some very clear battles that I need to, that I need to focus on. If it, it seems to me that, that this generation has, um, has something different. Uh, you know, as always happened, is cyclical. Again, this idea of the regenerative mode, it also happened within generations. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm very excited to see how, how, this, how the Generation Z will, will actually interpret all of this, you know, and, 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 and react to that. On that note, I'm wondering, like, you know, because you had a, uh, you know, you have a very mixed life, you know, you've been, uh, you know, in many places, you know, that uh, that element of complexity exists in the way society is built now. If you are, uh, you know, especially if you are an African, not especially, but, you know, my, my experience, an African woman, for example, South Africa, Senegal, that you leave a number of um, um, paradoxes, uh, you know, and dichotomies that, uh, that are quite unique. You know, the fact of being, you know, uh, the CEO of a company and give work to people. And then, uh, you know, uh, at the same time being as a black person, but at the same time also as a woman walking in the street. At the same time, you go home and maybe culturally, you know, you still kneel to your father, you know, or you take care of your of your younger brothers, your older brother, because that's your cultural role, and also accepting this or like navigating that space, plus a mother, plus this or that. There's a number of things, you know, and then if we then enter also the element of sexuality, you know, keep you know add another layer that basically there is there is no escape other than find new ways of looking at the world, you know. Um, I feel I relate a little bit when you were talking about, uh, no, it's about when you say you're, I'm allergic to rules, you know? And, and, I, and I relate to that because, you know, since I was born as a, you know, as a, as a, as a black kid in Italy and, you know, my body wasn't expected, you know, it was, you know, say it was a glitch in the system, you know, it wasn't expected. Then anything that is a rule, then I immediately also rejected because, 
any rule that ever existed in my, uh, you know, where I was born was basically against me, was, did not, did, you know, did not foresee my existence even. <laughs> so my only way of survival was by, you know, you know, deconstructing those rules, you know, deconstructing the assumption behind, you know, beyond that. So I understand that, but I understand also the struggles. What is your, um, share, what would you like to share, uh, you know, with, with, with your, with, with the younger audience, with, uh, with that generation Z or whoever, that there were some of the tools that, that you used growing up to navigate all of those complexities to then find your own or to keep finding your own, uh, uh, you know, temporary truth, if there are any. My identity is so complex and, and our family identity has been so complex that we know that anyone telling us that we can't exist or that things are not that complex is just not true. Otherwise, we wouldn't exist. It's what you're saying. There was no word or space for you, yet you existed. And therefore, you recognize the paradox. And you recognize that there has to be complexity. And, and for me, I, I don't think that my personal identity holds a secret to anything other than I can recognize that I do exist, despite all the rules that say that black and white shouldn't mix, or that this and this shouldn't happen, or that the, that you shouldn't you know, have two languages or more than one, you know, all of those things, they happen in me <laughs> and I exist and therefore it's possible. And I guess for these young people who I think are, I mean, you were talking about before, I mean, this, this generation I find to be incredibly under assault at the moment. They were kicked in the teeth through COVID. They're being kicked in the teeth through tertiary education. They're being kicked in the teeth through precarious working conditions. Um, and yet through that, um, you know, I think that you're seeing such a clarity of vision and an and a, and a awesome sort of uncompromising attitude towards the world that I think is, is amazing. And the most important thing is to hang on to that complexity, that you can be two things in one body, <laughs> that you can be more, you can be different things in one institution. And I guess when we go back to this global Africa or what is that, I guess it is that, that. I think that that is about being okay with that complexity, you know, with being Hosa and maybe your family's from a rural area, but, you know, now you live in Cape town and, you know, in Mitchell's plane or something and all, you know, it, it's the fact that it's, there's a complexity in so many of our experiences, whether it's, between rural and urban existence, between, you know, gay, straight, transgender, between, you know, our multiple roles, between who our identities are, that there, that there are spaces of holding more than one thing in who we are, and more than two things, and three things, is an infinite amount of things that we can hold together, that don't cancel each other out. And, you know, I, so many, like, Black kids, for example, in Europe are, like, you know, or in, in minority environments, um, including my own kids, you know, they get really upset. Like, am I black enough? Am I, am I this enough? Am I like whatever enough? And, you know, and I'm like, 
you know, black is who you are. You don't have to conform to a rule for what that is. And I'm using that identity in, as an example, like African is who we are as Africans. <laughs> you know, like I, I think it, it it is who we are and who we become. We don't have to conform to an invisible idea. And so you are not lesser of an African or a less yourself because you like classical music and kale you know you can be all those things because we have we have room I don't know I mean I think we have we have we have space there's space for complexity thank you thank you so much and thank you for the whole conversation it was uh it was very enriching for me uh really enjoyed it and uh yeah thank you so much and for me, thank you. I, I so love your, your podcast. They've, they've helped me a lot. And I'm really honored to be speaking here with you and, and whoever's listening. Grazie. Thanks for listening to our new podcast, Creativity Pioneers. If you'd like to check out other episodes and know more about our mission, please visit moleskinfoundation.org. Keep on following this podcast and share your comments on Facebook and Instagram at Moleskine Foundation. Until next time, stay creative.